0: Everyone, yeah. welcome to the Northwood branch of the Pratt Library. Normally, on this time, we have our book club discussion, and we read a book, and we discuss it, and we have a good time. Tonight, we have a special treat. We have an author who has come to us, and has a wonderful book on Paula. And um, in celebration of Black History Month, the last day of February, in the lead A.M., we're gonna have a Sharifa Rose. One of our book club members, Miss Nikki Green will introduce Miss Rose, and she's going to talk about her book, and then have questions and answers. And we have the book on sale for what is that, $20? twenty dollars? And she's got an autograph for it. So yeah. I hope you enjoy the evening. Thanks for coming out. I see some different faces. Welcome, welcome, and book club members. We're going to have a good time. We may not talk to each other this evening <laughs> as much, but um, <laughs> we'll be ready for our next book. Our book club, the Norfolk Books Club, we're going on to celebrate our fifth. I can't believe it's been that long, And uh, we have a group of wonderful ladies who will read any and everything. And we have some delightful discussions. So if you like to read, and you want to talk and share, you know, think about checking out our book club. Again, welcome the evening. And I'm going to turn the podium over to Miss Nikki Green. Good evening, everyone. I just
1: want to welcome everyone to our book club meeting. It's great to see a lot of new faces, and thank everyone for coming out to, through the rain. So without further ado, let's introduce our author for tonight. This author comes to us originally by way of Houston, Texas. She is a writer who has been published in numerous publications such as mm-hmm. Essence Magazine, Vogue, uh, New York Times as well as Harper's and a host of others she's been awarded um, many times by the Ronald Jaffe Foundation the Landon Foundation and the New York Foundation for the Arts she's a graduate of Harvard University and is also a Fulbright Scholar Mm -hmm. of the UK. this book is her first and she is, um, if I'm not mistaken, was in the process of writing a trilogy about African Americans and Utopia. Mm-hmm. And so, without further
2: ado, I want to welcome okay. this oh evening, mm-hmm. yes. Thank you. I am so glad to see you guys tonight, you ladies and gentlemen, because I had a I've been traveling a lot and sometimes you're like, what am I doing this for? (laughs) And then I walk into this room and I remember exactly why. So I'm just grateful to you um, for gathering as you do every month for the sake of knowledge and the pleasure of reading and, um, and really what libraries are all about, which is a gathering place for people, a place for people to go to seek out new worlds, certainly my whole life. Libraries have been that um, I was taken as a small child all the time with bags of canvas bags of books to the Houston Public Library by my mother and father. And there's a joke in my family that every at the end of every school year they always had to go to the school and pay off my library fines <laughs> before I could get my report card, <laughs> and it was true even through college. But so libraries have always been a big part of my life, and so I just want to commend you all for making this a vibrant place which I can just tell by your presence that you do, and also to the the staff members here, Ms. Sylvia, Judy Cooper, and Ryan, for the work that they do, and the others that I haven't met, um, for what they do in making this such an important uh, hub for the community. Um, And I would love to hear more when we have a discussion time about the books that you all read and what you like, what you prefer, what you don't like. But would you mind if I take a snap of you as an audience, just to document this... Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I just want to have a memory of you. So. Perfect. Thank you. So I'm going to do some reading. Um, then we can do some Q&A. And just go wherever the discussion takes us. I know some people here have had a chance to read the book, but not everyone. So. I'll give just a bit of background. Um, this book is something that developed not because I moved to Harlem to write the book, but I moved to Harlem, and the book seemed to demand to be written. Where every moment, if I was on a street corner or just stepping out of my house for a second, I felt like I was thrust into a story and, and questions and mysteries. And so as a person who engages the world through writing and through reading the best way I could figure out of how to answer those questions was to sit down and try to filter all these things I knew into this book. Um, one of the, the book club members mentioned that as she was reading that there were lots of different points of view in the book, and it's true. The book is both personal, where it stems from my own experience of moving to Harlem from Houston. Um, it takes on a vast... A uh, hundred-year stretch of history, going back to the beginning of Harlem as a black neighborhood, which begins around 1905. Um, it is a book that deals a lot with literature in the history of Harlem and the mythology of Harlem as we've experienced it through books and poems, um, but also with the politics of the place, as we know, like so many important strains of black political life, um, have passed through Harlem, whether it was as early as the 19-teens with Marcus Garvey, or in the 60s with Malcolm X, and many others, some of whom are less known that I mentioned in the book, and all of those things are alive on the streets all at once, where I feel like you can often walk down the street in Harlem and you'll, you'll meet someone that will claim to still be a Garveyite, even though that movement, you know, has, is over 75 years since its inception. And you can, of course, meet people who, you know, my landlord is a 90-year-old um, amazing businessman and World War II veteran, and I learned so much just from having him in my life, and he was very generous to me as I was a struggling writer trying to get myself together. But he, you know, could say, oh yeah, I used to see Malcolm We used to go to that cafe, there he was, and see Billie Holiday on the street. Like, it was just like no big deal. <laughs> oh yeah, Adam Clayton Powell, I knew him. Like, and so um, for me as a young person, I was just, those figures were all historical figures to me. And it was wonderful to understand the way that is living history still in Harlem and how the, this neighborhood has struggled to keep grasp of its legacy um, in a time when the neighborhood is being transformed by real estate development, um, deliberate Uh, actions of the city government um, how those these things are sort of colliding where there is a the history of Harlem is celebrated and people want to sell it um, but then how do you make that live for young people um, so it's not just the name of somebody on the street Malcolm X Boulevard Martin Luther King Jr Boulevard Adam Clayton Powell Jr Boulevard So those are all questions um, sometimes they float in and out of the book. I can't say it's a book that has a lot of answers. It probably has more questions than it has answers. But I hope that in the course of reading it, if you already have or if you're planning to, then you feel like you're part of a journey of, of seeking those questions. And and certainly, I hope also that you know the, the title Harlem Is Nowhere comes from a Ralph Ellison essay um, that was published in 1948 that was written about a free mental health clinic that was established in Harlem by white and black doctors who were striving to provide psychiatric care where black people couldn't have any. And for Ellison, as as a writer, this was, he actually wrote this essay before his famous Invisible Man. So it was something that was sort of, you know, percolating as this great masterwork was being undertaken. he was looking at the question of psychic health and mental health, but he, he made it broader so that the entire landscape of Harlem was a place where people's mental life was under duress, right? And the title, Harlem is Nowhere, comes from a phrase that he encountered um, that he shares in this essay, where he says, If you ask someone how they are, they might say, Oh man, I'm nowhere. And so it's this strange... We know how we, how we use slang in black culture where you can, one phrase will tell you a whole universe. And, and just to say, oh, man, I'm nowhere, in response to the question of how you're doing, says quite a, says quite a lot. So Harlem is Nowhere, the title comes from that. Um, my investigation and borrowing of that title is thinking about Ellison's original idea, but also the idea of this place, which is larger than life, um, which has as many mythologies as it has realities, where those two things are sometimes in conflict. And in our present moment, where Harlem is undergoing so many transformations, the idea of Harlem that has been carried around the world as the Mecca of black America, the, the most famous black neighborhood in the world, some would say the most famous neighborhood in the world, period, um, might be nowhere if it just becomes another place that is subject to um, selling the highest, most luxurious condominiums because that's what the market demands. Um, but then also Harlem is everywhere. I'm always intrigued when studying or just like glancing across something that you'll find that there's a neighborhood in Seattle called, that was known as the Harlem of the West, or a neighborhood in Denver or even a neighborhood in my own hometown in Houston that was known as Little Harlem. Um, and certainly the experience of the what is called the Harlem Renaissance, but it was in its own time was known as the New Negro Renaissance or New Negro Mo- Movement, was something that was happening in most places in America and not just cities, you know? So that, that, um, that striving... Uh, that concentration of energy that was both entrepreneurial and artistic um, and political wasn't limited just to New York. And those stories are available in most places. And also, unfortunately, the story of historical black neighborhoods that are under duress through gentrification and, um, and overdevelopment is also everywhere. So the, this idea of what Harlem means... Um, as a model for, for America is still relevant because um, those forces are acting in similar ways, in, not just in America, but re- truly around the world. So that's another question that I have. So that's just sort of an overview. Um, I'm going to do a few selections from the book and then take some questions. I will set a little alarm for myself so I don't go over. I'm going to jump around a little bit, but I'm going to read it from the beginning and then from a chapter a little bit further in, and then um, I'm going to tell you a story about an interesting library. I had already put the key into the door of my building on Lenox Avenue when the question came at my back. In one movement, I withdrew the key and turned to face my inquisitor. He stood waiting for my reply and then asked again, Do you think you'll ever go home? It was one of the neighborhood men who stand outside the front door during the day, sentinels keeping a vigilant watch. When I first moved here, they were almost invisible to me. We did not speak and exchange only the occasional nod, Neither I nor the men were being standoffish. There seemed to be an unspoken rule, perhaps a universal prudence for any strange girl arriving in any strange place, that I should come to know the women first. After I had been accepted by the women, the men began to make themselves known. By that point, the women had warned me about which men to avoid. I'd learned to discriminate between geezer flirtation and jive and I could hold my own with the biggest jive talkers. Soon, I was drawn into a form of protection. My new friends declared this adoption at unexpected moments. One or another of the neighbors would introduce me as their daughter. If I was stranded in the midst of an unwanted conversation with a persistent sidewalk suitor, one of the sentinels would swoop in to see him off. But if I came home accompanied by a man of my own choosing... I was later expected to give an account of his intentions, employment, and character. Home, he said again to my puzzled stare. Down south, do you think you'll ever go back home? It was a time when I was often in and out of the city. During phone conversations with friends, if I said I was at home, they'd often ask, where? But on this day, the man's question came out of nowhere. As I'd approached the stoop, he'd remarked, cold enough for you? On what was a relatively warm day a few weeks before the start of spring, I'd responded, not bad, not bad at all, noting how easily that banality passed my lips, approximating the tones of a northerner, feigning comprehension of their seasons. Maybe he'd sensed the falseness in my reply. Maybe that's why he'd asked that question, presuming a desire I was not in contact with, on that particular morning i answered cheerfully home to texas but i go back all the time this sent him scattering into an apologetic retreat as if he had suddenly as, as if he suddenly had a sense of invading my privacy oh he said and oh he repeated as if the problem of my dislocation had suddenly been made right i did not ask him if he ever went home I did not think of it until I was already in the narrow corridor that leads to the staircase that leads to my apartment, and now, in the act of recording it, this passing forgetfulness that he was also far from home strikes me as a failure of empathy. The yearning may have been more his than my own. It was odd that he should think of me, even as I crossed my own threshold, as a stranger, someone on the verge of departure, highly susceptible to the mere mention of flight. But it says much about about the impermanent status of my residence here. My neighbors were accustomed to seeing me leave with luggage in the earliest parts of the morning. I had maintained an innocence of city politics and refused certain hallmarks of the committed citizen of New York, like a red or black wire rolling cart for groceries or a tabloid newspaper selected on the basis of the best horoscopes. I should not have been surprised that some of my neighbors on Lenox Avenue were still trying to understand my presence in their midst. On a different occasion, a different man from outside my door had asked where I was from. He was surprised, pleased even, to hear I was from Texas. Oh, he'd said, I thought you were a foreigner." this next section that I'm going to read is from a chapter in the middle of the book called messages. Um, it's chapter five and it kind of takes you further into that experience of being on the street and being inundated with things as one is. And if you've ever spent time in Harlem, you know quite well what I mean that sense that there's always this energy in the street and, and, and signs and people selling things and, um, and for me, as a person that's like always just trying to read the situation, there's always messages in that. Some of them I don't understand right away. Some of them I probably read more into them than they are worth reading. But it's all information, and it's just as much research as, as going to the library for me. So this section is, is that experience of um, being in the street. I greet my neighbors in the street. I come from a place where you speak to people where they, when they cross your path stranger or friend. I had to learn the particular greeting common to this place as I have done in other places. On the streets of the Faubourg Treme in New Orleans there was a luscious formality. One says good morning and good afternoon and good evening. Your salutation is a sundial that tells the time of day. Walking country footpaths in England I learned to proclaim all right cheerfully authoritatively, even. It is at once a query and a declaration, but there's never enough of a pause to determine if things are, in fact, all right. Here, I learned a greeting more familiar, almost intimate. You say, how you feel, or how you feeling. This question seeks out the inner state. Said said in a certain languorous tone, it leads one to pause on the sidewalk, exchanging minor confidences. It is not a question from which you can rush away. There are other manners of speaking that are not so easy to adopt. For instance, when a person refers to the street toward which they are walking, or the street where they have just been, or a place where a third party can be found, should any of those streets be located above 110th Street, in Harlem it is customary to make a graceful abbreviation. 133rd Street would be called 33rd, 125th Street, 25th, and so on. This manner is not easy to mimic. A stranger should not try to emulate it. But a stranger to this place can take comfort in knowing that even the locals were once strangers too. Where is your home, I have often asked, or where are your people from? The answer will be someplace in Alabama or Georgia, the Carolinas or Mississippi, From asking such questions, I have come to learn the names of small towns throughout the South that I never had cause to know about or think of. Scotland Neck, North Carolina. Denmark, South Carolina. Yazoo City, Mississippi. At first, I hoped that being from a place not so far away, I'd be met with slightly less suspicion. In the course of such conversations, my tongue slides across the meridian toward those places we call homes. The rhythm of speech is a password. Shared laughter sweeps you across the threshold. Crucial facts of my existence raise eyebrows and alarms. You're up here all by yourself, or you're not married yet, or you don't have any children, and you don't belong to a church. The questions I ask, where is your home? Where are your people from? Search out origins. The ones people ask me seek to establish my position in the present order. My answers reveal that I am decidedly adrift. A stranger stops to ask if I require directions. I have lingered too long before stepping into an intersection, or I look uncertain as to where I am headed. The reason is this. I am looking up at a building or down the avenue, or scrutinizing a sign that refers to some place no longer there. I shake my head no, insisting I am not lost or even very far from home. I offer thanks for their kindness, then resume staring, or hurry along in in imitation of someone with a purpose. Often enough, my attention is carried off by something I have not sought. Walking west on 125th Street, approaching 7th Avenue, I hear garbled sounds carried by a bullhorn and wonder if there's a rally in African Square. I arrive to find an evangelist occupying the median in the shadow of the Hotel Teresa and calling out in Spanish, "Jesus viene." Further up the avenue, I notice that the address of the headquarters for the 5% nation of gods and urns known as Mecca in Harlem is 2122 7th Avenue. The address bears auspicious numerology. When added up, the building's number equals seven. The street name is seven. And according to the 5% philosophy of supreme mathematics, the number seven represents Allah. Perhaps it is just a providential sign confirming the supremacy of the poor righteous teachers, that 5% who know. I saw a street vendor squatting close to the ground beneath a red, black, and green flag on 125th Street. I thought he'd be hawking revolutionary tracks, but he was selling packs of batteries. There are churches that used to be synagogues, churches that used to be casinos, churches that used to be movie theaters, churches that used to be bank buildings, and churches that used to be houses. Many churches are locked during the week, throwing open their doors on Sundays to parishioners who live in other boroughs and tourists from Europe and Japan. On 134th Street sits a small church built of slate-colored stone. It looks as though it should be in the Welsh countryside, atop some craggy moor, not in Harlem, next to an abandoned lot. It has a red door, and its steps are covered in green astroturf. The doors are usually locked. There is a mural on the side of the church, next to the lot, which says, The Open Door, invoking John's vision in the book of Revelation about the establishment of the New Jerusalem. I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me with the sound of a mighty trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after these things. The mural shows a group of people with afros standing in two lines awaiting entry. The doors in the mural are red, just like the ones at the front of the church, but unlike the actual doors of the church, these are crowned by the variegated colors of a stained glass fanlight. A dazzling light draws the faithful through the doors, but the artist offers only a mystical suggestion of what lies beyond. Other than the lettering invoking the open door, the only writing on the mural is a dedication that begins to the memory of. You cannot read in whose memory this work was made, The facade is crumbling, and a great chunk of plaster has fallen off the side of the building. Remnants of that name must be concealed by the thicket of weeds in the abandoned lot below. I used to walk by that church regularly, imagining what was inside. I pictured an austere, formal interior to match the cool, gray stone. When I finally did enter, the occasion was a political meeting. We didn't use the sanctuary— Its doors were closed, and I pressed my face against a diamond-shaped window, but could not see anything in the dark. The preacher let us use a basement meeting area that looked like it normally hosted post-worship luncheons. There were folding tables festooned with red plastic party tablecloths, arrangements of fake flowers, and a number of decorative plates lining a display shelf against a side wall. The preacher said the building was a hundred years old, but they were going to tear it down because the structure was no longer sound. I have passed there since they have not started the demolition. A sign advertises the fundraising activities of a building campaign. For a long while two lampposts just in front of the church bore signs whose message related to the seekers to what seekers would find beyond the open door. Map to heaven, the signs read. But the map to heaven isn't a map at all. The shape of heaven is not described by a sphere or a spiral or an island of clouds hovering above the earthly realm. There are no streets, mountains, or rivers. The map to heaven is a series of Bible verses. A brief summary is given for each item of the list, along with a reference to the necessary chapter and verse. All have sinned, Romans 2.23, and God's paycheck is death, Romans 6.23, and God Loves You, John 3.16, and The Gospel Saves, Romans 10.9, and Received Christ Today, John 1.12. A passerby in search of salvation, redemption, or deliverance from peril, but faced with a chain around those red double doors, could find guidance from those two signs, like pillars at either side of the straight gate. Other signs nearby show how to take a day trip to Atlantic City, how to reach your full earning potential as a self-employed travel agent, how to make life easier by engaging the services of dog walkers, babysitters, and handymen, or how to join a medical study if you are a crack-addicted female. In the summer's heat, I note an increase of signs in search of the disappeared, Alzheimer's patients, and teenage girls, but also invitations to hip-hop rooftop parties and yoga classes in the park. There are signs advertising apartments for rent. Lately, it seems these are not in Harlem, but in the Bronx. You will see signs that say, Se renta cuartos, means rooms for rent. The phrase is at once straightforward and in code. The language and the words tell quite a lot about what kinds of rooms are being rented and to whom. Recently, a photocopied sign with ornate lettering appeared. It publicized an open house and proclaimed an incredible real estate bargain. The price of a townhouse on historic Striver's Row had dropped by $400,000. The new discounted price was $2,550,000. All are welcome. A cell phone company that must have hired a culturally sensitive advertising firm promoted itself with the following corny ode. Harlem, you rule. How do you stay so fly? From the old heads in the fedoras to the shorties rocking uptowns, Harlem, you never disappoint. Culturally, no one has given us as much as you have. From music to art to dance to literature, you're a renaissance community. You've changed the world. We followed your lead by offering cell phone plans without annual contracts. Just use one of our plans with unlimited 7 p.m. nights and weekends to get at us. Like everyone else, we just want to be in the place to be. Not far from there, a less coherent appeal cries. Harlem United, scattered side of 306 Lenox Avenue and North General Hospital need to be investigated for discrimination with the Latinos. I got witnesses and evidence. From a bus crossing 116th Street, I saw a sign that said, danger, but I did not go back to to that spot to investigate. There are signs to free the Gina 6, signs for a People's Tribunal on the government's role in Hurricane Katrina, signs to stop the war in Iraq, signs to stop a war from beginning in Iran, signs for a new 9 11 Commission. Around Thanksgiving appeared this impassioned plea Come help me capture the fire and the water so it will not overflow or burn when we slip through to feed the hungry, needy, children, and forbidden. For thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Before Christmas, I saw a sign for a food and clothing drive sponsored by the new Black Panther Party, a benign implementation of the original ten-point platform with which even the Boy Scouts or the Junior League could agree. A more militant articulation could be found on the sign advertising a boycott that never gained much support. The People's Committee says to boycott Jimbo's. McDonald's, Burger King, and White Castle hire blacks in Harlem. Why not Jimbo's? Other signs ask other pressing questions. A document of several pages was posted to a lamppost on my block. The first page was titled Black Inventors Extraordinary Inventions. The subsequent pages contained a list detailing those inventors and their inventions. At the end of this dossier, as if the names were evidence at some tribunal of what used to be called racial feeling, there was a plea that was both damning and sorrowful. Why are the grandsons of these people not even working in their country? The very last page was either a cryptic answer to the question or Exhibit A in a separate charge. It was a poorly reproduced photograph of a lynching amidst the crowd of spectators a little white girl in a white frock flanked the charred and mutilated corpse. She was squinting, looking at the body with her head cocked to one side. Why don't you look at me? Thus began a screed posted on 125th Street, the work of an anonymous latter-day pamphleteer. Attention new residents of Harlem, a.k.a. Washington Heights, etc., please be aware that you are contributing to the active displacement of the historic Harlem community. Yes, gentrification, which is a pretty word for modern-day colonization. You cannot blame the politicians or real estate brokers as long as you are willing to pay exorbitant prices for the same residential property that was once affordable. As you see more white, Asians, and others in economic advantage, you will see less blacks and Hispanics. Economic racism... Are you the problem or the solution? There is no neutrality. But do you see us? Because this is a neighborhood, specifically I refer to where you are reading this sign. We look at each other here and even greet the people we see daily. Why aren't you looking at us? Is it guilt? Are you purposely ignoring me? Are you afraid of me? This is often seen as a sign of disrespect. And if you are afraid it would behoove you to look at people. How will you know who is an actual threat to you? Learn about and respect the places you decide to live, but even better would be for you to decide to live elsewhere because where are we supposed to go? Those advertisements, indictments, and supplications are rained on or ripped down or covered up or ignored. At the base of the same lamppost, someone has stenciled messages and spray paint. All along Lenox Avenue, 7th Avenue, and 8th Avenue are reminders of a struggle that elsewhere has gone underground. We demand reparations for slavery, and they stole us, they sold us, they owe us. Reparations for slavery, now, now, and the Huey Huey P. Newton reader, that's what's up. And we demand universal health care as reparations for slavery, and we have not forgotten reparations for slavery, and why are you scared of reparations? These near-permanent ciphers have begun to fade, covered with layers of grime. They have the effect of a subliminal message, quickly flashing at the edge of consciousness. You must be looking down to see them, or be otherwise disconnected from your surroundings. They are quick enough to read as you are just about to step into a busy intersection. Now, now. But there is no information about how the goal will be achieved, or how to join the cause. Some are exhortations, Some are demands, and the placement of the signs at various intersections in Harlem suggests that the audience of the exhortation and the target of the demand is the same or overlapping or otherwise indeterminate. Once I crossed 139th Street as an alternate path, walking that way just in order to see the street. It was a street in which I had no business, and this was obvious as soon as I entered the block. I looked down and saw at the base of yet another lamppost, a sign that was not an exhortation or a demand or some part of a ten-point platform, but a message altogether more mysterious. It was also written in spray paint, but the words were scrawled by hand. Look out, this lamppost warned. I did look out, edgy and vigilant, until I reached the end of that block. But by the time I received their notice, the words at the base of that lamppost had likely fulfilled their mission. The message had already been delivered from and to emissaries of a realm whose boundaries are not visible by the light of day or perhaps of a realm that exists only in the mind of a solitary spray-can scribbler. My eyes falling upon those words and my mind later racing to attach some unverifiable meaning or the eyes of another scanning that same spot without taking notice. All this was an unintended, meaningless consequence. Okay. I'm going to read one more short section after a sip of water. And then we can talk. Um, So this is from toward the beginning of the book, in a section called Into the City of Refuge, where I talk about the Great Migration, both through the characters that tell us that story through literature, like the heroines of Zora Neale Hurston or Nella Larson, and the heroes of novels by County Cullen, Claude McKay, and also snippets of stories from real people, and... Then I end with this one story that is one of my favorite parts of the book, um, partly because of the experience of finding this history was so uh, serendipitous. When you're doing research, so much of it comes as a gift to you that you have no idea like what, how you were directed to that particular moment where you were there in order to receive that information, either in conversation or even in the library. And this was a, something I found out about because I was literally just probably taking a break from my everyday routine in the library, and there was an exhibit in the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is where I spent a lot of time, and there's a whole chapter about it in the book. Excuse me, there was an exhibit, and there was this one small artifact from the White Rose Industrial Association, which I'd never heard of. I'd never seen it written about in a book. And I started looking up the history of this organization, and I was completely bowled over, and I'll just tell you the story now. During the years when New York was swelling with newcomers from Europe's shores Victoria Earl Matthews established a refuge specializing in the welfare of those not included among Lady Liberty's huddled masses If you're following along the book it's page 44 just so I see some of you are so. specializing in the welfare of those not included among Lady Liberty's huddled masses Mrs Matthews prominent in New York's black society and the daughter of a Georgia slave, founded the White Rose Home in 1897, providing classes in cooking and sewing to black women, along with meals and education to children of the black poor. The White Rose was similar to the mission societies and settlement houses, then opening in New York for the uplift and assimilation of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. It filled a need those other charities did not address for at the White Rose home, quote, sometimes a few little Italians and Jewish children come in with the others and they are never turned away. But the settlement is there for the dark-skinned little Americans who are not very welcome elsewhere. Mrs. Matthews expanded this program of good works when she was called upon by a friend to give hospitality to a young girl from Jacksonville, Florida, arriving in New York to seek employment. Victoria Matthews arranged to meet the girl at the dock. The young traveler would wear a red ribbon drawn through a buttonhole in her coat. According to the memoir of a White Rose home associate, writing in 1925, although Mrs. Matthews was at the dock promptly, one of those unprincipled men who haunted the wharves in those days, and to some extent do still, managed to seize upon the girl and lure her away from the wharf. To the most earnest inquiries, only one answer was received. Yes, such a girl was aboard, but nothing had been seen of her since the boat landed. A general alarm was sent out, but nothing was heard of the girl until she wandered back to the wharf after three days. She could not locate the place to which she had been taken, but her experience was sad and bitter. She was sent back home, and Mrs. Matthews resolved that she would use all her energies in seeking to prevent another such disastrous occurrence. Thus, the White Rose Industrial Association took up its mission to be a friend of the strange girl in New York, a sanctuary for the migrants. Let, it, let us call it the White Rose, Mrs. Matthews declared. I shall always feel that the girls will think of the meaning, purity, goodness, and virtue, and strive to live up to, its, to our beautiful name." Acting as an unauthorized society for the aid of travelers, Mrs. Matthews and her collaborators took turns at the pier in order to meet every steamer of the Old Dominion line arriving from the principal southern port of Norfolk, Virginia. They delivered the witless and lonely travelers out of the hands of job sharks and into a setting where they could find pleasant lodgings for girls with privilege of music and reading rooms, dining room, kitchen, and laundry offered at reasonable rates. In some cases, the neediest wayfarers were housed for free. By 1925, more than 30,000 girls and young women had passed through the doors of the White Rose home. Quote, some were well-educated, earnest, of sterling worth, capable and willing to take care of themselves, needing only the advice and encouragement of a good woman. Others were in need of help in many ways. They had no money, no knowledge of of the ways of a great city, no friends. They were sheltered, guided, fed, clothed when necessary. Many taught to work acceptably acceptably in the homes of the metropolis, and many others saved from lives of shame. The original White Rose home was located on the Upper East Side. By 1918, when the black population of New York was in the midst of its move to Harlem, the White Rose home followed, leasing and then purchasing a brownstone on West 136th Street. But the White Rose was more than an employment agency or a rooming house. It also provided moral guidance. How the custodians of the home kept their charges away from the nearby speakeasies, taverns, and ballrooms is unrecorded. The young women received assistance in job placement and classes in race history. Whereas the domestic training was necessary for the new arrivals to make a living in the very limited field of work available to black women, the classes in literature and race history were a particular passion of Mrs. Matthews. She was a writer, that's my alarm, a writer and an intellectual. Her own development had been encouraged by an employer who interrupted her in reverie while she was supposed to be dusting books in his library. In 1905, the original White Rose home was said to possess one of the most unique special libraries in New York. It included works by Booker T. Washington, Charles Chestnut, and Paul Lawrence Dunbar, rare volumes like a 1773 second edition of Phyllis Wheatley's poetry, a bound edition of the 1859 Anglo-African magazine, which gave an account of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and its subsequent trial and execution, and several narratives of escaped slaves. If Matthews provided the tools of domesticity, including a good stock of aprons, dust caps, dusters, etc., always on hand, her library and classes held their own utility. She said, Our history and individuality as a people not only provide material for masterly treatment, but would seem to make a race literature a necessity as an outlet for the unnaturally suppressed inner lives which our people have been compelled to lead. The library of the White Rose home provided a shelter for souls based on the conviction that racial uplift could be accomplished by young women whose only value in the white world was as maids. Thus, she hoped to inspire in them confidence in their group and in themselves, confidence and a hope that she believed would incite them to noble thoughts and great ideas and deeds. Who dares to estimate to what extent her dream was realized? The 70th anniversary of the White Rose home was celebrated in 1967 on the the society pages of the Amsterdam News in an article that bordered notices about a Mardi Gras ball, the installation of new officers at the Imperial Elks home, marriage announcements, and the Founders Day festivities for a sorority. In addition to its purpose to avert the perdition of innocence, the White Rose had also become something of a society enterprise. The archives of the White Rose held at the Schomburg Center preserve the records of the regular garden parties, annual annual linen showers, gypsy teas featuring performances of operettas, and a teabag festival that raised money for roof repair by imploring invited guests to drop herein three pennies for every year old. Upon its 1967 anniversary, the house on 136th Street still received lodgers in its dormitory rooms, which could be decorated to the taste of the occupant. The whole house had recently been renovated, reported the Amsterdam News. Their rooms retained their soft nostalgic glow with its homelike atmosphere. <coughs> Pale yellow walls in the first floor meeting room provide a cheerful background for the mahogany paneling and treasured antiques. One, a chair from the home of the founder is one of the most revered pieces. The article is illustrated by a picture of three members of the White Rose Home and Industrial Association and a clergyman attending the anniversary occasion. They flank the empty chair of Victoria Earl Matthews. One woman lays a hand upon its seat, as if in supplication to a holy relic. One day I went to find the White Rose Home. It had been operational in name at least, into the early 1980s. I found it on a street of brownstones that were plain and modest in comparison with the distinctive manses of nearby Stryver's Row. Arrangement of silk flowers adorned the exterior window boxes. The building was well kept, and the address was fixed to the front in oversized gilt numbers. I thought of knocking on the door to gain entry. Instead, I stood across the street to have a better view. Soon a man came to the house, walked up the stairs, and went in. I tried to look as though I was not paying unusual attention to his home while half wishing it had been open to receive me upon arriving in Harlem with a suitcase full of tales. That's it. Thank you. So now, thank you for your patience and attention and listening. If anyone has any questions about the book um, or has your own experiences of Harlem that you'd like to talk about and share or questions about writing or anything, I'm getting. So.
1: If yeah. you wouldn't mind as well, just uh, use the mic for podcasting. So just gracefully, talk to
0: the
3: mic and then pass it on to the next Okay, time. I didn't know I'd be on blast. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment I thought it was a a well written well documented uh, work and even though it's scholarly and it has a lot of um, uh, good research it it has a flow sort of a rhythmic flow a literary Mm. flow and I like the way that you you celebrate the common person in talking to people and getting their stories because I think that's the vibrancy of Harlem I'm familiar with Harlem I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area, mm-hmm. and I have my family has a lot of stories also. Yeah, could have, you could have talked to some of them. Sure. But it was it was a well-conceived uh, work, and it sort of looks it looks like something that could be on a shelf that you know young people want to explore Harlem. And I think there is a return. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a, a son who lives in Harlem. Okay, and uh, friends. Of children of friends of mine who have returned to Harlem Mm -hmm. so that's encouraging because it has changed but there is a movement towards going back to uh, this sort of root system of
2: Harlem well thank you for your comment and I I appreciate it any questions any other questions or comments okay Okay. let me pass someone to the front you got it Did you move to ha- Harlem to write the book? No, I moved to Harlem in 2002 because I wanted to move to New York. And even when I was a, a young teenager, I was always planning to move to New York to the point where I didn't learn how to drive until two years ago because I thought, I'm moving to New York. I don't need to learn how to drive, <laughs> even though I'm from Texas, where you need to learn how to drive. So, anyway, New York was always like my destination. And a couple of years after college, I was ready to make my start and get my writing career underway, so I moved, and I moved to Harlem because I would never imagined living anywhere else in New York. Like, Brooklyn wasn't really attractive to me, or the rest of my, it was always Harlem, and that was because of the things I'd read, and I talk about this in other parts of the book, the stories and poetry I read when I was younger, that put the, um, the image of that place in my head before I'd ever even gone there.
0: And when you graduated, were you, were you thinking about becoming a writer and becoming a writer
2: Making a book? I was. I definitely was. Even much earlier than when I graduated. I always was interested in the arts. Like when I was a child, I was a dancer. And I did theater. And I was forced to do music lessons, even though I was not very musical. But I loved to dance. And, and writing and reading was always a big part of just my exploration. And even though I did other things, for a long time, writing was the thing I, wanted, I loved the most. I didn't quite know how it was gonna happen. And I studied filmmaking when I was in college. I thought I wanted to make films and be a director. And even as a director, or, you know, stories are at the basis of that. It's a different way of telling them, but you have to know how to tell a story. So I was always focused on writing, even when I was maybe putting my interests elsewhere. And then by the time I graduated, I was pretty much focused that that's what I was gonna do right. And so I started working as a freelance writer, where I would write for magazines and websites. Um, and then that sort of started to build into a writing career. So, yeah,
0: thank you. You're how welcome. Was classified?
2: Um, classified as nonfiction, and the genre. with the nonfiction is very. Oh, sorry. You should probably repeat that question into the um, mic because they're trying to record it. If you. Can. I'm sorry. How is your novel classified? Right. Thank you for repeating the question. It's uh, it's nonfiction, so that's the first genre classification and then within that I think people have questions about what kind of book it is.
4: I kept thinking historical novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's in the uh, non
0: section and it the for New York City and um, it's under non-fiction New York City. Yeah,
2: but some people say like for instance I'm happy to say I've been nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you which is being decided next week but I'm nominated in the category of autobiography oh, which if no. you read the book you'd be like well it's a personal book but it's not necessarily an autobiography oh, right. Right. but that was where they thought I fit for the purposes of the award which yeah. as my friends and family say we'll take it <laughs> um, but so there's a, there's a mix of genre like as I said at the beginning and as some of you have experienced like there's times when it's very historical and even some people would say scholarly There's times when it's much more casual and telling everyday stories. There's times when it's political. Um, So it's kind of a mix. And I guess the main... I always think of myself as first just an essayist. And that can encompass many different um, kind of fields. Because the main thing is about asking questions and exploring curiosity. And then within that, you can go any number of places. So... I guess I don't think about the category when I'm writing it. It's kind of a problem for the publisher and librarian, so they know where to put it so you find it. So thank you. Okay, there's a, the mic is back here, so we'll t- take that and then go
3: forward. I, um, I have not read the book, but I wanted to really compliment you on the writing from your reading. It was beautiful, beautiful writing. Thank you. Um, I grew up in New York and actually went to school on 110th Street and mm-hmm. then have been back to Harlem, deeper into Harlem more recently, and I'm very aware of a lot of the changes. Mm-hmm. Um And I guess my question is, when you mentioned, or when your um, introduction was mentioned about your next project, Mm -hmm. if there is sort of a flow from this experience to the idea of utopia?
2: Yeah, for certain. Um, The next project is something I'm like, it seemed to get underway. Um, It's a book about um, Haiti. And then the third part of the trilogy is about the black belts of the south. And so for me, I definitely see it's a geographical flow, um, and these personal journeys, like north, and then abroad, and then home to the south. Also, in each book, there's a link of characters, in a way, historical figures, that show up at all of the places, all three places. So you would have following the trails of people like Zorn or Hurston, uh, James Weldon Johnson. Um, even W.E. Du Bois has a Haitian connection and certainly a Southern connection. Um, and other figures. Marcus Garvey, kind of, the Black Star Line was supposed to make a stop in Haiti but distributed whatever it did and he, when he was finally deported from America, it was from Atlanta. So I'm interested in these, the map sort of begins to make itself of these places that have a great um, power in the, like, Spiritual, creative, and political life of Black people in America and the world, and so in trying to um, go deeper into places that are sort of have a great myth and larger than life, and who are so important in our history, but then always trying to to kind of slide underneath that great story and find the, um, the small stories inside of it and put them in that context. So that's what I'm hoping to do. I was actually planning to start the Haiti research in January of 2010 um, when the earthquake happened. So I was a sort of a blessing or just um, kismet situation where I was waiting for a check from my publisher so I could pay for my trip, and it didn't come. And so that has delayed that research, and I'm planning to get it underway this spring. So that's my next big leap. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Next question...
1: I have two questions my first question is I write myself and I was wondering if you had troubles finding a publisher Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and my second question
0: James Baldwin
2: he wrote a lot about Harlem Mm -hmm. did that influence you at all um, yes, well the first question about publishing, because I was already working as a freelance author and I had things published in magazines and websites, and I would published a long piece about Harlem that was a, sort of a personal essay in a similar vein of some parts of the book. Um, when I decided I was ready to write the book, um, I had an agent, which is really the most important thing if you're going to go with traditional publishing routes. And that person was able to advocate for me with different publishers, and so I had a kind of journey where I had to talk to different people and gauge like their interest or my interest in them, and it was a pretty standard process. Um, of course, so much is changing in publishing now, um, where people have the power and freedom to bring books out through non-traditional means, where you don't necessarily have to go the route that I went, um, though it's still available, and with self-publishing. Um, or e publishing, which is like I'm really interested in publishing. When I before I moved to New York, I wanted to start a small publishing company because I thought and I still do, it's just something that I kind of like started thought I would become a writer first and then work on the business part of that idea. Because there are so many stories and so many writers and traditional publishing really isn't broad enough or necessarily imaginative enough to be able to deal with all of that. And so I think people often do have trouble funding publishers. And I know people who are agents who represent really talented writers and have trouble getting their work seen just because of the way that business operates. I've been fortunate um, for a book that is a little bit hard to classify and isn't necessarily like a popular um, aimed book to have support from my publisher and to have them kind of be patient and see where it goes. And And for me to kind of take the book out on my own to help meet people and help it reach people and have that experience and I think that's always the most important thing once you are able to deal with a publisher is that it's really up to you to help your work meet your audience Um, but of course the first thing is always the work Um, and to spend that time in apprenticeship with your craft and um, so that you have something to, to bring into the world and the second question about Baldwin, yes, certainly a, a big influence and a writer I revere and I'm interested in. Um, there's a section in the book where I talk about him really directly, sometimes wrestling with him, not always agreeing with him. Um, and I, would, you know, he's a figure that I find really fascinating, um, but he's not someone I worship like without any criticality, you know. But but he's someone that when you read his sentences, you just kind of want to faint because they're so like amazingly crafted and so very important yeah thank you so where is the mic we should follow the mic okay pass it to the back oh you, well they're recording so they probably want you to
3: <laughs> my question is of a personal nature so if you don't want to answer that's fine okay. but i was wondering how old you are
0: mm-hmm.
2: And if you tell us a little bit about your background growing up mm-hmm. in Texas. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> I'm 33. I'm going to be 34 in, a few, in April. Um, and my background growing up in Texas, I am Texan on my mother's side. My mother is from Texas also, and her family is from Texas many generations. And my dad um, was born and raised in Chicago, but both of his parents have Alabaman roots. My parents... Um, met in Texas. They were both involved with political activity in the early 70s, that's how they met. Um, my mother is a visual artist, um, who would, and certainly was a big influence in my, in the creative life being available to me and not seeming uh, extraordinary. At the same time, like, I, I saw very much close up like the sacrifices that that required and the sacrifices she made of her own creativity to have a family. Um, My dad is an academic, and he was in graduate school most of my childhood, working on his Ph.D. Um, He's an economist, and now he specializes in um, the questions about black labor and unemployment. Like He studies especially problems with black unemployment. So I definitely grew up in a house where there were a lot of ideas um, and when I decided I was taking this path of being a writer, that wasn't seen necessarily as being, like, such a weird thing, where I definitely have friends who, you know, I have one friend in particular who's won awards for his poetry, has published multiple books, and his parents are like, when are you going to law school? <laughs> but I didn't have that experience. I'm very grateful that I had a, have a supportive family, and um, some of the risks that I have taken in order to follow this path, which has been, like, pretty... Um, unsteady at times I think I was partly prepared by for them by the experience I had growing up which is unsteady in some other ways for similar reasons for the things that my parents decided to do um so it being a little bit non-traditional was a little bit traditional for for me does that answer your question it does. <laughs> thanks
4: Hi. Um, Hi. Your writings remind me of the themes in August Wilson plays, Mm. and I'm wondering if you ever considered writing a play.
2: Oh, thank (laughs) you for that question. I was actually, I am really interested in theater. Um, It was one of the things I studied, you know, simultaneous to film. Um, I definitely studied playwriting, and I feel like, I often feel like with any kind of creative form, like, the story requires... The form, so there may be a story that comes to me and says, "I am a play," like you know, or there may be a story that comes to me and says, "Like you're a filmmaker, you have filmmaking skills." Like I am a film, and this was a book. So, and I think of you know, I like to collaborate with people. Writing is a very solitary endeavor, and one thing that's been really great is when I have the chance to work with people on other things. So, working with visual artists on helping their projects come to light, or presenting performances with people. And so those are ways for me to kind of get out of my own shell. Um, Theater is an incredibly collaborative effort. Um, And I'm just always happy to have the chance to step into that world. And I feel like in the future, I might be able to, I might be called to do that again. So, yeah.
4: Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would like to say personally that I found the book to be very different Mm -hmm. from anything else that we've read. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed the book but I would have to say you took me to school (laughs) because because I had to be very attentive in reading the book. Mm -hmm. But you also took me back because I have a sister who probably moved to New York in, I would say, the early 60s, -hmm. And so some of the things in this book where you're describing the apartments and mm-hmm. the sharing of the rooms and mm-hmm. the narrowness of the hallways, right. I could relate to a lot of that mm-hmm. and some of the streets that you mention in the book. Mm-hmm. But and I think you, you uh, indicated in the book that in terms of your work and where you lived a lot of your uh, experiences, you did a lot of walking. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. I don't remember any section that dealt with riding the subway. Oh, because yeah. trust me, a rural girl oh, moving, yeah. uh, going into New York and experiencing the subway, right. you could have done a whole section <laughs> on just riding the subway.
2: Yeah, but it's interesting that you picked that up because I think, I don't know if I said it in this, but I think I did say it maybe once, but the first couple of years in New York, I was very much uptown. And so like my first apartment was on the 120th Street, and then I got a job a few months after arriving that was part-time job that was, like, three blocks away. So I would even walk home for lunch. And I would just, like, stay in this really small radius. And so, like, Harlem for a while was, like, my world in New York. I wouldn't go to Brooklyn. I would go downtown occasionally. And so, for me, I'm actually from Houston. I'm from a big city. So the subway was its own experience, but it was the street life in Harlem that was intriguing to me, you know. And the, um... Just that crush of being like up against people and every, everything being um, this sort of, like it was a stage, you know. So that was, I feel like the thing that I was drawn to because that was new to me as opposed to growing up in Houston where you're, you're in the backseat of a car experiencing the city. So, and the subway is interesting because, you know, it's changed so much. I remember when, my, when I was a child and I think my family went to New York once when I was too young to remember, and I would hear the stories from my mother, like, we have to turn our rings around on the subway or take them off, <laughs> or, um, <laughs> you know, or just and then, and seeing the, seeing like films, or they had like this, the graffiti on the subway, all that stuff, so that's like the subway that was in your head, and then, things, I mean, New York has got, become so sanitized in a certain way that like, you go out on the subway and there's like fluorescent lights and everything is like scrubbed down clean, and there's certainly crazy things that still happen on the subway, but and when I first got to New York, it was still kind of in transition, and they still had those, some of those old subway cars that would rattle like so hard that you know, they are going to come apart on the way to the station. But, um, yeah, I'm sure, I feel like, if, I had been like a, if Brooklyn had been my experience, where you were on that long right. train ride. You that, have stories to tell from. Sure. There are always stories that don't make it into the book, of course, too. So.
3: Where do you see your writing 20 years from now? I, as I read your book, imagined several fictional books or Mm -hmm. stories Mm -hmm. that could have occurred. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you feel that down the road somewhere you will use some of the nonfiction and infuse it into a fictional book as some story. Um, Just where do you think that your your writing Mm -hmm. is going?
2: Yeah. I'm certainly interested in fiction and it's always the thing that's like this frontier that I haven't quite crossed into. I've never published any fiction, though I've tinkered around with it privately. And so that's just a matter for me to kind of conquer that part of my own craft and just keep working with it to the point where I feel ready to share that with the world or with with a trusted reader to begin with and then keep going. Um, And it's just as I said before, like sometimes stories come in different ways and as I think about, when I think about fiction, sometimes it's like a nugget of something. And oftentimes it can be, because I do so much research, historical research, there might be a story, you know, like I'll read a, a snippet about this king in West Africa that had a, like, an army of, of Amazon women who fought the French for him. And I'm like, that's a novel, like you know? It doesn't, even though I could write an essay about that, sometimes it seems to like, beg for a different kind of treatment or imagination or just, like, everything that you can bring to something from, your, from the interior. And I feel like with the nonfiction, it's often a process of letting myself open up to all of this external experience and then sort of absorbing that and then going back and, and sorting it out. So there's a different movement, I guess, from external to internal versus internal out into the world. So I do certainly... It's something I want to explore. And whether you know whether my writing you know continues to reach people i guess that's the main thing that will determine like i'm always interested in like going back and finding authors that maybe we'd learned they're not remembered now even though 30 years ago or 20 years ago they were a great sensation so you never have a way of knowing that and um you know my godfather in texas is this amazing artist and he always tells me like you're writing for people you just have to think about it. you're writing for people that haven't been born yet like it's just something that's so far in and like that contact even though I have the gift of being able to talk to people now who are reading it but also the imagination of like what if it could go on that long you know so and yeah that's what reading is about because I've had that experience of reading other people's work
3: yes I haven't read the book yet but mm-hmm. have you ever thought of turning the book into a film
2: I haven't, because I guess I'm, in my own limited imagination, I think of nonfiction, and maybe it's not filmic. But I had a friend who's a filmmaker who said, has anyone bought the film rights? <laughs> and I just said, no, I didn't even know anyone would want to. So maybe someone would want to one day. I'll, I'd be open to talking about it at least. Maybe mm-hmm.
0: one or two more questions, because we wanted to sell the books. And okay. We
2: and if you have questions, like we can mingle a bit, too. Maybe one last
0: question?
2: Um, I missed the intro, so I hope I'm not asking you to repeat something. Mm-hmm. Um, you speak of going to Haiti for the next one. Mm-hmm. One, my question is, how long would you stay to research? Right. And is, has that book spoken to you? Would it be nonfiction Haitian that mm-hmm. we'd look up? Or is it is there, when you get there, it'll yeah. craft itself? I think I have to leave so much to the experience. You know, it's really impossible to say in advance. It's definitely going to be a similar... Kind of form nonfiction, exploring past and present, doing both experiential stories and things that are based in a lot of research. Um, But the experience part of it, it's impossible to say in advance like what that will be like, and also how long it will take me to feel like I have. um, You know, just the first thing I'm going to do is learn Creole so I can speak to people, and. And after that, you know, to how long it will take me to feel like I have um, something to say. And I also don't take for granted that I will, even though I'm saying that there's a book that I'm doing. But I, I think sometimes writers, journalists, people who consider themselves journalists more than I do, sort of go in and they have this like, objective and they know they're going to go in and get the story, so to speak. And that's a very different method than my own. I feel much more tentative and sensitive about that, that kind of approach to people's lives and, and history and stories so again it's sort of a, some part of it is a passive experience of letting things come and, and sort of trying to trust that there will be something there but I don't know in advance mm-hmm. sure
0: thank you so much thank you thank you so
1: much